Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the place, holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. As is always the case, I do hope that you will keep your Bibles open with me. Uh, there to Leviticus, uh, we are in uh, an amazing moment in the story. We're in the middle of this uh, sermon series, really near the beginning of the sermon series in the history of redemption, accompanied with the BibleTogether.com reading plan. I do encourage you to continue on there, continue in your reading that we would learn this story. It's the story. It's not a story. It's not a story I might commend to you if you have time. It's the story. You're living in the midst of this story. I pray that you're living in the midst of the redemption that is in this story. We are in the middle of sort of retelling and remembering uh, the history of redemption. The reason why we're in the midst of this series, it's going to take us through the end of the year, all the way through the Advent season, uh, is that we would become familiar through repetition and through understanding. You know those aren't the same things, right? Uh, th- those are different. Uh, we do need repetition, and we need understanding in the midst of that repetition that we would com- become truly familiar, uh, partakers in the story of how you and I can be reconciled to our God. You can see why that's the story of history. How can we be actually know and live in the presence of our Creator? Today we come to Leviticus chapter 16. And if you're in that chapter with me right now, you can see the, the title at the beginning of this chapter is the Day of Atonement. I do hope you have your Bibles open. I hope you can see that. And I know that a number of the kids are with us in the service as this is the first Sunday of the month and I'm glad you're here and I hope you have your Bibles open and that you're interested to to see something because I think we're all gonna be learners. In fact, I just have to be honest, uh, this week uh, it it was mentioned to me, I often forget that first Sunday of the month is coming and the children will be in the service, and so I plan these big 45, 50-minute sermons, right? Uh, and, uh, and my wife kindly said, you know the kids will be with us this week, right? And here you are. I can see you. I'm glad you're here. And then she said this, and I'm not throwing her under the bus. This is true. She said, um, but really, we're all kids when it comes to this stuff. I mean, who here would put yourself as a mature adult in your understanding of Leviticus? Who here could just really unpack for us everything that took place in Leviticus chapter 16? So, kids, all of us, let's give attention. Let's learn. Let's grow in repetition and understanding together. Here we are in the Day of Atonement. The the word atonement in Hebrew is the word kippur, all right? And the word day in Hebrew is yom. So, if you have yom Kippur, you have the Day of Atonement. And some of you are like, Yom Kippur, that sounds familiar. I feel like I heard that somewhere recently. There's a chance that if you interacted with a practicing Jew, that you interacted with someone that this past Monday was celebrating Yom Kippur. Yeah, it's true. On the the seventh, the tenth day of the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar, they celebrate and was instituted in this chapter before us today, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, September 25th, this past Monday. And this is where we are and what we're going to give attention to, because it is given to all who have any interest in what it means to be atoned for, to be made at one with your God. 
Let's pray. Lord, I pray that by some miracle of grace, by the work of your Spirit, everyone here, from the youngest to the oldest, would be interested in what it means and how it can be so that I and we can be atoned for. Lord, I pray that we would be interested and that we would respond in the way that you have called us to respond with genuine faith, that we would believe that what you prescribe is true and that what you have done has worked. Give us, Lord, by this repetition, by whatever attention we have to give this morning, that your Spirit would work in us by these things to give us understanding and faith to live in light of this cornerstone reality of the atonement. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus, our atoning sacrifice. We pray in his name. Amen. So the stage is set. Uh, By the time we get to Leviticus, as we're working through this story together, the scene and the props have all been put on the stage. I think like that. I've spent a little bit of time on the stage in in my life, and I know what it is to sort of get to a moment where at the beginning of a play or a movie, it's a blank slate. There's nothing there, and it's the job of the director, and it's the job of the actors, and it's the job of the set design to sort of build the stage and and to put the props on the stage so that the, 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 the people who are watching can learn the story that's being told right? So the stage has been set over the course of the beginning of this book, and by the time we get to Leviticus 16, the stage is set, the scene is ready, and all the props are in place. We're now ready for the drama of redemption. It's why the first moments of, historically anyway, of stories are kind of boring, like, you, you know what I'm talking about. When you open up a book and you're like, it took me a little while to get into it. Yeah, because they were just setting the stage for you. Now, I find it quite interesting, the things that are happening in the setting of the stage. But now, in Leviticus chapter 16, we get to a climactic, action-packed moment for the drama of redemption. We can recall how God has set the state of redemption thus far, how we set the stage. We begin at the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, 3, and in there we have God's goodness and his generosity being revealed, and specifically it's being revealed in creation, right? And then we saw how mankind, male and female, created in the image of God are this special creation, this image of God creation placed within the rest of creation and given some specific roles in creation. And then we saw that very creation, man and woman, Adam and Eve, the first image bearers, reject the command of the creator. So it's a neat story. It's a pretty story, a story of creation and story of new people. Oh, how sweet. We could draw a painting about it. And then they rebel against God and disobey his command. And you're like, ooh, we got a story on our hands. Do you see what I mean? So the stage has been set. And the plot line, this issue has been set be. For us, the, the plot line of, re, of redemption is in motion, and the problem is clear by the time we're done with chapter 3 of the story. Now, it continues. There's lots of things that are done, but I just want to highlight a couple of the things that really move the plot line forward. We have the call of a man in Genesis chapter 3, right? In Genesis chapter 3, we have Abram that God would name Abraham. And in Genesis 12... God reveals that the plan to redeem, the the plan to deal with the issue that's been revealed all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 is going to come through the seed of a particular man, Abraham. God is beginning to put together some of the parameters of his plan. He hasn't accomplished redemption yet, but you're starting to see, okay, it's going to have something to do with Abraham. It's going to have something to do with all the families of the earth being blessed through the descendants of Abraham, and particularly through the seed of Abraham. Now, the New Testament tells us that that singular seed is speaking about a person, not just a bunch of people. Now, then, a little bit later, we have an establishment and a rescue of this people that came from Abraham. 
We have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're sojourners in the land of Canaan. And then in the midst of that, uh, being sojourners, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are actually rescued in the midst of a famine. They wind up wind, uh, God through God's provision in the land of Egypt. Now, what's interesting is it's in Egypt that they aren't just a called-out person and a couple of his descendants and, a, and a, a, a small little tribe that are with them, but it's actually in Egypt that they become a great people, a multitude in this foreign land. And God calls that great multitude, an actual identifiable whole group of people are called out of Egypt to worship him. Hear that. Why are they called out of Egypt? They're called out of Egypt so that they would worship him at the mountain. That's so important. God is not just establishing a people. He's establishing a people for worship, all right? This is God's intention. God's intention actually, I would argue, is not actually redemption. Redemption is something that God is doing to establish worship. He redeems the people up out of Egypt and establishes them as his worshiping people. And he tells them in Exodus 3, last week, we saw the covenant name. He tells them, I am who I am. Am, God says. And by the end of Exodus, we have this relationship between God and Redeemer, uh, the God as Redeemer and a people that he's redeeming to himself. And then we have the law when we have a tabernacle. I think these are sort of two sides of the same coin. We come to Leviticus and God has redeemed a people to worship him And he reveals to them in Exodus and in Leviticus, he reveals to them a way of life that is good, and we call it the law. So what what is he doing when he's giving them the law? He's giving them something that is good and sweet. I've, I've, I've shared with you, imagine a world where every single human being on the planet obeyed all of the Ten Commandments. Now, you may be like, ooh, that's too restrictive. Yeah, but like nobody's killing each other. Can we like get a little bit of restrictive and have like not everybody killing each other? Like that's, it's beautiful. That's what the law is. It's giving them a beautiful, good way. Having redeemed them already to himself as a worshiping people, he gives them the law. And on the other side of the coin, he gives them the way of worship. He establishes them them as his worshiping people, not a people who come up with imaginative, innovative ways to worship, but rather revealed ways of worship. He gives them instructions, and he gives them promises, and he he, he describes for them a tabernacle that they're supposed to build according to his design. So do you see, God has a design for the way that they live their lives, And God has a design for how they worship. This is Leviticus. And now, I would argue, we've got the people, we've got the creator, we've got the redeemer, we've got this redeemed people, we have promises that we don't really understand how they're going to be fulfilled. I would argue at this point, we have the scene set and the props are on the stage. Now, can we get to the redemption part? Like the real redemption part. We're now ready for the drama of atonement to take place. And here's how it begins. Leviticus chapter 16. Are you with me? Look at it. I want you to go to verse 2. We'll come back to verse 1 in just a second. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark. It's like being real clear. I'm, I'm telling you, don't come and I'm being very explicit about where not to come. Don't come to the holy place where I am seated so that Aaron may not die. So there's the first instruction about atonement. Don't come. Don't be with God. Let's be clear. That could have been the end of the chapter. Right? Yeah, people... Yeah, creation, pinnacle, creation, reality, humans, Adam and Eve rebel against me. They're unclean. They are rebels. 
He could have killed them right there, but he didn't. They, they endure, and then he makes promises to, to Abraham, and he establishes the people, and then he brings them up out of Egypt to establish them as worshipers. And then, we'll look at this in a second, like I said, Aaron's two sons try to approach God as if, yeah, we're all set, right? I mean, we're the worshiping people, and we're, so we're going to come before God. And God's like, no, that's not how I said to do it. Atonement is necessary. And so, God sends Moses to Aaron to say this, don't come. Don't come. Don't come and you won't die. Just live out there. I'll be in here in the holy place. You be out there with all your unholy people. Don't come. And it's kind of got, I mean, it's got a period at the end of the sentence. Like, it doesn't say don't come unless, da, 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 da. No, it just, it's just don't come and then you won't die. It could have ended there, but instead, the brutal, ongoing, irrevocable, deadly reality of sin's separation from God is laid before Aaron. I think that's what he's doing. He says a strong statement, don't come, so that we would hear that brutal, irrevocable, deadly reality of our sin, that we are outside the tent, and the Lord is in his holy place. Now, We can go back to Nadab and Abihu. These are the two sons of Aaron that are referenced in verse 1. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. I would reference there and put it in the margin of your Bible. I'm not going to read it just for the sake of time, but Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, and it describes the account of the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. Let me just say they were not summoned before God. They were not summoned They had not been given the instructions for how to worship in the very holy presence of God, and they came anyway. And and the point is so clear. You can't just walk, Adam, Eve, you can't just walk back into Eden. There's an angel with a flaming sword. I know you want to come back. I know I've said some things that tell you there will be a time when you can be restored, but you don't just get to waltz back into Eden, sinner. And they did. And they did because they thought they'd come up with a really good way to do it. And they died. God has two concerns when he describes this to them. He says, this is what the Lord has said after the death of Nadab and Abihu. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the peoples, I will be glorified. In all of our talk about God's love, his grace and redemption, which is true and full to the full, not one moment does God put down or put aside that he is the sanctified one and that he is the glorious one. That is unmitigated. And these are two of God's primary concerns that he is sanctified and glorified, to maintain the integrity of his holiness and that he will spread news of his glory. This is the issue. Everything up to this point has not made the people holy. And that's the whole point of this like 17 minutes. There's been 17 minutes of introduction so far. How are you doing? You doing okay? Kids, you still with me? This is the point. Not anything thus far in the story has made anybody holy. What everything that has happened in the story so far has done is revealed God is holy. And that's the scene that is set. When we sing our songs at the beginning of the service, what is their point? The point is to hold up God is holy. And we sing this song, Confession. What's our point? I, I am not. And it sets up the drama that we enter into in the prayer of confession and in the opening up of the scriptures. Is there any atonement? for this circumstance. And this is, I think, where we are by the time we get to Leviticus chapter 16. God has done a number of things to mitigate between his holiness and sinners that he's calling to himself, but each time that he has done something in the story thus far, it's been circumstantial and temporary. Yeah, it's going to provide an image for God's ongoing work by which he will finally atone and finally redeem, but none of the things that we've seen in the story up to this point are anything more than circumstantial and temporary. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
Adam and Eve. They're naked and ashamed, right? What does God do? He provides them covering. Man, it's just, a, it's just clothes. He kills an animals and he covers them with the skin of animals. That's important. It's an important image, but it's temporary and circumstantial. It's just dealing with this immediate circumstance of Adam and Eve's nakedness. We have the provision of the ram in the place of Isaac. God demands a sacrifice. And it's clear that ultimately what's required for sin is exactly what God had originally warned Adam and Eve of. What's required for sin is you will surely die. That's the thing that God is revealing. And at the last moment, after he demands the sacrifice of Abram's son, Isaac, he says, there is surely a substitute. And he provides a ram. And the ram is sacrificed instead. But it's only temporary because it's the blood of an animal. One animal for one man. A ram caught in the thicket for Isaac. On that day, circumstantial and temporary. A beautiful image, but not final redemption. The, the Passover over the Jewish houses by the blood of the lamb. It was, if it were not for the blood of the lamb, listen, at Passover in Egypt when the, the angel of death went over the land, the Jewish families also would have suffered the death of their firstborn. That's true. And so God made a provision. Slaughter a lamb and take the blood, put it over your lamppost or over your, over your door, and, and the, the angel of death will pass over them. But it was that atoning work was temporary. It was circumstantial. It was sovereign a particular moment. But it's not the final atonement. It's not the final redemption. Now what we come to in our passage today in Leviticus chapter 16 is the day of atonement. What takes place is the greatest image that we have so far of final atonement. And yet, hint, even it will be required to be done annually, year after year. It's never quite finished. So, what do we have so far? The scene is set. We're in verse 2 of, we're going to actually preach through the whole chapter. Just giving you a couple heads up here, guys. Uh, verse 2, we have Aaron is told, don't come. Now we get to verse 3. And here's what verse 3 says. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Wait a minute. Do you see what I'm saying? Like verse two was so clear. Don't come and don't come to this place where this thing is because I am there. Don't come or else you'll die. But in this way, you shall come. I think God is doing that very, very much on purpose. I think he's revealing something to us. The severity of the hard stop, if you come, you will surely die period. No more conversation. Now, if I provide, if the Lord's speaking, if the Lord provides a way to come, you better come. And you won't die, you'll be atoned for. Do you see it? I just think already there's something beautiful in here. This verse is grace. This, this verse, verse 3, that it exists at all, and it's told in this way, is grace upon grace. He tells them not to come, but in this way, you shall come. God makes a provision for man that is in himself impossible. How does he come? Well, we're told that he comes with a bull and a ram for himself, and he comes with two goats and a ram for the people. We're not used to thinking like this, but we're going to see it. I want you to, by repetition, understand this morning that the, the day of atonement actually works. It works. Aaron and his sins are atoned for. Aaron and his household and all the people that he comes to represent as their high priest. It works, and their sins are atoned for for that year. God is, with the Day of Atonement, establishing a means by which the people may actually come before the Lord through a priestly representative and not only not die, but be reconciled in this way. Well, what does it mean? What is the this way? The rest of the chapter is the this way. So we're going to unpack three words with a pile of words. What are the events of the atonement? Well, a sin offering and a burnt offering are for the high priest and the people. You can see it at the end, verse 5. 
And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats and a, for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. He's also previously said that, they would bring a, a, that he would bring a bull for himself and a ram for himself. So we have four different sort of categories of sacrifice. Verses 6 through 10 are a quick explanation. I'm not even going to read it. This is a confusing chapter. I, I hope that, I'm, that you'll read it. You'll read it, right? You'll give it attention. And I'm just warning you, when you read it, you're going to get confused because it's, it's not a chronological chapter. He introduces things, explains them a little bit, and then he goes back to the beginning. And he says, now, back to the beginning. Here's what you're supposed to do as you do that. So bring a bull, bring a ram, and then bring two goats and a ram for the people. He says all of that. And he goes back to the beginning. He says, now, verse 6, and Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering. And then he explains what's supposed to happen with the bull and the ram and the two goats and the ram. And then in verse 11, he says again, back to the beginning. Here's the beginning of the story. Aaron shall present the bull as a sinner offering for himself. You're like, didn't you just, you didn't already tell him to do that? Are there two bulls? No, there's not. It's just not chronological. He's explaining when you bring the bull that I already told you about, this is what you're supposed to do with it, Okay. Verse 11, Aaron kills the bull as a sin offering. So he kills the bull, all right? He's not supposed to bring the bull, present it before the Lord, and then send it back into the rest of the livestock. He kills it. Verse 12, he's told what he's supposed to do next. He's like, okay, now I got a dead bull. What am I supposed to do? Because he doesn't want to do like Nadab and Abihu and come up with things to do on his own. He wants to listen to the Lord and say, Lord, how did you say to do this? Got a dead bull. What do I do? Verse 12, bring blood from the sacrifice of that bull, and that bull is for you, Aaron, you and your household, into the holy place. And when you bring the blood from the dead bull into the holy place, I want you to bring coals, and I want you to bring an offering of incense. And when you get in there, are you picturing with me? This is so visual now. Everything from here is pretty chronological. When, when you come in with the blood and the coals and the incense, take the incense and put it before the Lord and it will rise up and it'll cover the mercy seat. And you've kind of got this room of an image of the the cloud of God's glory and holiness in this holy place. And then what do you do with the coals and the blood? Well, what you do is you take the blood and you, in this holy place, this square room, and you're to, in verse 14, you're following along with me, right? In verse 14, he sprinkles the blood on and before the mercy seat. Like, that wasn't helpful. What's the mercy seat? Well, in this room, it's a perfectly square room, and it's called the holy place. It's not a terribly large room, and it doesn't have windows. And, and it doesn't have a door. It just has a curtain that separates it from the rest of the tabernacle. And in this perfectly square, later when they build the temple, it's going to be a perfect cube of a room. At the far end of that room, opposite end of the curtain through which Aaron will enter, is a box. That box is known as the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of that box are the tablets of the law. And on top of that box is what is called the mercy seat. Now, I find this fascinating. The word mercy seat in Hebrew, is the word kippuret. What did I say kippur means? Atonement. I'll be honest, I ran out of time. I wasn't able to research how we wound up calling it mercy seat, but most literally, it simply means atonement place. What is sitting on top of the testimony in the box that's the Ark of the Covenant where the Lord makes his glory known to the high priest? The atonement place. Here's why this is such a big deal and why there's a way to come. There is only one way to come to the atonement place. And God is establishing that, sure. And the way to come is by the sprinkling of blood on the atonement place and before the atonement place. Verse 15. So that's sort of that that paragraph, 11 through 14. Then... After he's done doing this, killing the the bull and then sprinkling the blood, he comes and he kills the goat 
And the goat is a sin offering for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in the front of the mercy seat. So he, the bull, who was that for? That was for Aaron and his household. And so now the, the high priest is prepared and cleansed and atoned for so that he can now, as one who is atoned for, come before God on behalf of the people. And he does that via one of the two goats that he was supposed to get. We'll come back to the other goat in a second. So he comes in and he brings, he kills the goat. And now we got a dead goat. And he's like, what am I supposed to do with a dead goat? And so he takes some of the blood, just like he was told to do with the bull. And he brings some of that blood inside of the holy place. And he approaches the atonement place and he sprinkles the blood on top and before the seat, the mercy seat or the atonement place. And that cleansing, we're told, is not only for the, for the people, verses 16 through 19, it's, it's not only for the people, it's also for the tabernacle and the altar. So it's pretty much for everything. All the things have been cleansed by the blood. First the priest, by the bull. And then the people and the instruments of worship by one of the two goats. Which leaves me wondering by the time we get to verse 20. So we got a dead bull. We got a dead goat. But he was told to get two goats. And there's one goat standing there saying, phew, made it this far. (laughs) Well, what happens to him is is maybe worse. It says in verse 21 that, that, that Aaron is supposed to make confession of sin over that goat. And he lays his hands on its head. And there's a transfer of iniquity from the high priest who is now cleansed to be a high priest and whose the sins of the people have been atoned for, any iniquity is transferred from himself to the goat on behalf of the people. And I don't know if I'd rather be a dead goat or a live goat bearing the sins of all the people. And this goat has a problem. It's, uh, we call it uh, contemporarily a scapegoat. Uh, this goat is sent away into the wilderness. So now... The sin offering or the blood offering, the blood sacrifice, it's all done. We have a dead bull, we have a dead goat, and we have a goat that is iniquitous, an unclean goat sent off into the wilderness. After all of this, we're in verse 23. Man, we're moving now, aren't we? Verse 23. Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he had put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. Here's what this tells us. There's a transition that's happening in verse 23. He wore linens for the blood sacrifice. And Aaron is presented before the Lord as he makes atonement as simply as he possibly can be without just straight up being naked in the holy place, which would not be okay. Even the angels know to cover themselves. And so simple linens when he's making the blood sacrifice. He's not able to approach, and Aaron is not able to approach until he's clothed, but not with finery. He's only able to approach, not because he dresses up just nice. He's able to approach only through the blood. I could just pause and say there's something beautiful and instructive to us. Who here tried to get yourself all ready to meet God in worship today? Was it your clothes that did it? Is that how we come? Or was it like trying to clean yourself up and make yourself look fine, cleaning the the whitewashed tomb that is your soul to be able to come before the holy God? Or do we come simply because we come only, not through finery, but through blood, through the blood of a sacrifice? But now, by the time we get to verse 26, after he's offered the two blood sacrifices and sent off the scapegoat, he he bathes and he changes into the fine uh, priestly garments. Verse 26, we're told that there's more cleanup to do, that the one who guided the scapegoat out into the desert, when he gets back, that dude's supposed to get cleaned up because he's been hanging out with a dirty goat, all right? And he's supposed to come back and get a bath. And then we've got this dead bull and we've got this dead goat, right? What are they going to do? Well, they're told that they're supposed to clean up, take the dead bull and take the dead goat and take those two outside of the city 
They're blood sacrifices. You're not eating this. You're not burning it. It's not holy before the Lord. It is a means by which they're atoned for. You take those dead animals, take them outside the city, and you burn them. And then the person, when they get back from burning them, that person has been touching dead bodies. And so he's supposed to bathe. So you have all these people sort of cleaning up in the middle of all this to prepare for the next phase. The representative of the people has been atoned for. The instruments of worship are clean, and the people themselves are atoned for. An atonement has been made until next year. And then they offer a burnt sacrifice, two rams, one for Aaron and one for the people. And that burnt sacrifice is a pleasant aroma as the, as the flesh is cooking on the, the altar and burns up to the heavens. And it's a a sacrifice of worship. It's not, not as much of an image of an atoning sacrifice. That was the blood. That's an image of worship and thanksgiving for Aaron and for the people. But we have an annual reset year after year. In fact, by the time we get to verse 29, and it shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, or on the current Jewish calendar, last Monday, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, and then you'll do all of these things. Afflict yourselves refers to fasting, and the whole community is fasting from food, and they're fasting from work, and this feast becomes a revolving annual reminder of an ongoing need for atonement. I mean, I really do. I think that that's the, it's verse two. Don't come because you need something. You can't just come before God because you're not reconciled to God. You'll surely die. So it's an annual reminder of a need for atonement, and it's an annual reminder that God has made provision. He's made provision. He has a plan for a means through which you will be atoned for and that is blood sacrifice. Now, everything else that plays out has the day of atonement as the necessary grounds. Here's what I mean by that. The atoning sacrifices on the day of atonement, they work. Like God tells them, and, 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 and how do I know that it works? I know it works for many ways. The, the labor of the high priest works because when he comes before God, where the place where he has said that he would manifest his holy presence, he doesn't die. Nadab and Abihu, whatever they did, didn't work. They're dead. But Aaron comes, and he's not dead. It worked. Whatever's happening there, whatever God is doing through blood sacrifice is functional. Through the annual blood sacrifice, the people are cleansed, and the life of worship is made possible, and they feast throughout the year. And they're able to feast and worship the Lord in his presence and live with the tabernacle at the center of the camp because of the atonement. And yet the scriptures are full of so much more than just a reminder of a yearly atoning sacrifice. It's not like Leviticus 16 is the end of the Old Testament, right? There's a lot more that's said. Here's my argument. The day of atonement is the centerpiece of the history of redemption. In fact, one of the things that we say at Cross Point Coast is we're gospel-centered. We can say it different ways. We could say we're Christ-centered. We could say we're cross and resurrection-centered. It's just another way of saying that at Cross Point Coast, we are atonement-centered. We could start saying that. Maybe it'll catch on. Here's what we understand. We understand that atonement is at the heart of redemption. And we're telling this history of redemption. And so, Leviticus 16 is the heart of the story. The Day of Atonement is the climactic image repeated yearly to demonstrate all the necessary elements of atonement or redemption to be accomplished. In fact, Leviticus 16, if you kind of go like this in your Bible to the beginning and the end of it, you'll see it's the centerpiece of Leviticus. On either side, we have complementary instructions about the law, and we have complementary instructions about the people's worship. But at the center of it is atonement. Because without atonement, the law is worthless. And without atonement, worship, you don't get to because you're not with God. Do you see? It's at the center. 
here's what I'm trying to share with you. Let me give you an illustration. Think of a house with pretty windows. All right, you got the house with pretty windows in your head. The pretty windows are a metaphor for the beautiful and necessary things of Scripture that are not the atonement. All right? It's a beautiful house. Think of things like loving your neighbor. That's beautiful and necessary. Think of things like justice in the community of faith. Each simultaneously essentially important to what God is doing, but neither are the cornerstone of what God is doing. Yes, pretty windows are necessary to have a house with pretty windows. Imagine a house with pretty windows that doesn't have pretty windows. You can't do it because pretty windows are absolutely necessary to have a house with pretty windows. But this is my point. Sure, if you don't have pretty windows, you don't have a house with pretty windows. But if there isn't a cornerstone and a foundation for the house, there's nothing to talk about. You see what I'm saying? Is the love of neighbor an essential part of the beauty of what God is building? Absolutely it is, but it's not the cornerstone and foundation. Because without the cornerstone and foundation, there's nothing to talk about. There is no structure at all. It's in this way that we say that we are gospel-centered. What we're saying is we are atonement-centered. It's not that I don't care about or think about all the necessary and beautiful things that God is building on this absolutely sure, square, perfect foundation. But without the foundation and making sure that that is right in our hearts and minds, repeated and understood, there's nothing else to talk about. Atonement. I can give you a couple examples real quick. There's no purpose for the law without atonement. Commit adultery, you're condemned. Don't commit adultery. Still not reconciled to God. What's the law do for you? If there's atonement, you're reconciled to God as a people, and there's a beautiful way for a faithful marriage open to a redeemed people to live in the presence of the holy God. The great psalms that are written and recorded for us to sing, like the psalms of scent, without atonement, there's no point of the psalms. They're just beautiful windows that don't exist in a structure that doesn't exist because there's no foundation. So, What's the point of the minor prophets? What's the point of all their calls to justice? Without atonement, you aren't just. And you're not justified. So the minor prophets, there are no minor prophets. There's not, no beauty of, of justice and peace among a people without the cornerstone of atonement. Everything else given to us by God's word is opened to us, given access to us through Atonement, how do I know this? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Man, that is from Hebrews 9, verse 22, and that belongs in your Bible in a margin in Leviticus chapter 16. Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The rest of the story is the building of a beautiful house with all of its beautiful, pretty windows. Further images of atonement, for the revelation of our need for atonement, news of how God brings final redemption and atonement into the world, and an explanation of God's justice on those who are unrighteous and are not atoned for. But atonement is the key, the cornerstone. What was that again? Without the shed of, shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins? Here's what that means, and it's actually the context from which it's pulled. Jesus, the shedding of the blood of the Messiah, not the bull, not the goat, offered annually, but Jesus is the end. Some of you may be familiar with the word telos, the end, the purpose, the fulfillment, and the final destination of the Day of Atonement. You see, the Day of Atonement isn't the climactic final resolution. It itself is moving as a pointer forward annually until Christ. Jesus appears, and the mystery of the Day of Atonement is finally revealed, and we have life in this building that is being built, this redeemed people given to us by the apostles, and we, we discover what the beautiful windows are that are built on this perfect cornerstone. Jesus is our atonement. Hebrews, I encourage you to go and turn over there as we wrap up together. Hebrews. You can probably go over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is 
I mean, it just is my favorite book in the Bible. Uh, there was, uh, was told a long time ago that there was a man who was asked if he could bring only one book of the Bible with him to a deserted island, what book of the Bible would that be? And he said, without flinching, Hebrews. I mean, obviously, because it has the central elements of all of the scripture. It shows the mysteries that are revealed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It has extended quotes from the Psalms and the prophets, and most explicitly, it connects the annual day of atonement to the perfect fulfillment of Jesus Christ. In other words, why would he bring Hebrews? Because he wants to take the cornerstone with him. And on that deserted island, God can build up a house, but not without the cornerstone. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. When Christ appeared as a high priest, do we see a high priest anywhere today? Aaron, right? Jesus, the Messiah, appears as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the tabernacle, a better one, not made with hands that is not of creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Do we think that's curious metaphorical words? Or do you think he actually did it? Jesus took up the role of high priest and he went somewhere. Let's remember, Jesus was raised in the flesh. And so Jesus, the one who was crucified and resurrected in the flesh, in the flesh, in holy places, not on the earth, but in the heavenly places, walked the halls of the holy places of heaven. Like that happened. The angels could watch it. He's entering heaven, of which the tabernacle and the temple are just a copy and a shadow. And then it says, he did that not by means of the blood of goats and calves. What's he talking about? Leviticus chapter 16 but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, he didn't need to be cleansed like Aaron did. He was the perfect one. And he comes by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer and sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If the day of atonement was God's own prescription, how much more when the very elements that are prescribed are offered perfectly? See, the day of atonement is prescription annually observed by fallen people. What about when the perfect one appears? And he executes the prescription perfectly. Hebrews 9, 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, i.e. Leviticus 16. But the heavenly things, because there are real heavenly things. I've never seen them. I don't know exactly what they look like, but I know what their copies look like. They're described for me in Scripture. And they need to be purified by better sacrifices. Yes, the Day of Atonement was prescribed, but the purification it offered was earthly and temporary, just like the provision of clothes for Adam and Eve, just like the provision of the ram for Isaac. Earthly and temporary. But there is a final and complete provision. It continues. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf, not before a seat where you kind of get to imagine God's glory being revealed by incense that rises up, but the presence of the Father. In all of his glory, Jesus comes in his resurrected flesh. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. And then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But that's not what he did. He did it once for all. The author of Hebrews continues to build an argument. And this is where we're going and where we began our worship this morning. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 19. Leviticus 16. The Gospels and Hebrews 9 give us this. Therefore, you're like, this has been really interesting, Jeremiah. Thank you for sharing. It's been a bit long, but can you tell us what in the world we're supposed to do with all this very interesting stuff? Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence. That's what's happened. Confidence. Not like, oh no, don't want to like a Nadab and Abihu moment. No, confidence. Finished. To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Therefore, with confidence draw near. That's it. Here we are again. I feel like it happens almost every week. What's the application? What's the therefore to go and do? Believe, brothers and sisters. Believe. Therefore, you have access to God. Or is there something that remains that Jesus didn't do? Come. For the one who is here, who has not yet believed, who has not yet come, because you're trying to put on something. Stop it. Believe that the atonement of the Christ worked and just with confidence draw near by faith. And I would suggest to you, and you can work this out in your community groups this week, it changes everything. That through that atoning peace, that place of atonement that Jesus has worked for us, we gain access to the whole structure with all of its beautiful windows. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're building, what the history of redemption is revealing. We thank you that the, there is no mystery. Like, I don't get how a bull atones for a man. And why do we have to do this every year if it works? The mystery is revealed in Jesus. A man, the perfect man, gave his life. I thank you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to work out what this means, that we would believe, that you would root out unbelief, that you would call to confession of faith today for the one who is far off and that all would draw near with confidence in Christ. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your scriptures. Teach us how to live in light of what you have established on the sure foundation of atonement. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.